0: Welcome to the podcast, neither free nor fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the twenty-first century. This episode is titled "To Coup or Not to Coup." I'm James Long, associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington, and host of this podcast. I'm joined for today's episode by my colleague Victor Minaldo. Victor is professor of political science and also a co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. Listeners will know Victor's voice, thoughts, and ideas from our other podcast series for the forum, where he's done episodes on liberalism, capitalism, science, evidence-based policy making, political economy, and innovation. But today I wanted to have Victor as a guest for Neither Free Nor Fair to speak about some of his substantive and applied research, particularly from Latin America, on transitions between authoritarian and democratic regime types, the roles of elites and citizens in those processes, where and why coups occur, and how he sees the future of democracy in the 21st century. Much of Victor's thinking on these topics appear in his excellent book, Authoritarianism and the Elite Origins of Democracy, co-authored with Michael Albertus. Hi, Victor. Hi, James, thanks for having me. So Victor, in the US right now, citizens, the media, activists, political elites, everybody on all sides have reached this fever pitch of worry about the transition to a new presidential administration. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris declared victory last Saturday and after vote counts and projections put them firmly over the threshold to gain a majority in the Electoral College. And with Arizona and Georgia now called for Biden, Biden has won this election comfortably with 306 Electoral College votes, 36 over the threshold to win, and I should note the same number that Trump won in uh, 2016. But President Trump has refused to concede the race, and many Republicans in elected office have not yet congratulated Biden and Harris on their win, as the president continues to pursue legal cases to stop the count and verification process, none of which thus far have been successful. So Joe Biden is the president-elect, and this election is over. And yet many Americans and those in the media have expressed concern over the last week that the president is attempting a coup or an auto coup or that he can somehow steal this election, declare himself the winner, and prevent a peaceful transfer of power, or any transfer of power. But I would argue that such concerns, while certainly anxiety producing, really have no grounding in an understanding of US law or history. But moreover, they are falsely pointing to other countries that have experienced coups and not really learned the right comparative lessons from those cases. So before we get to a discussion about the US, Victor, given your expertise in studying transitions toward and away from democracy in Latin America and other regions, I wonder if you can help us first develop a framework for understanding how we should understand periods of political transition. And I'll start by kind of the big elephant in the room and the thing capturing a lot of media attention right now with what is a coup?
1: Yeah, so the way that I would define a coup is the first distinguish it from other things that are like it, uh, I think an inductive type of approach here might help. And to think about other extra constitutional, irregular, potentially violent episodes that displace one incumbent with another. And I want to culminate with a coup on purpose because a coup is nested within these other types of irregular transfers of power. And this might seem a bit uh, simplistic like, uh, uh, or pedantic, but I think it's important. So let me start with what's not a coup, but what is similar to a coup in that there's an irregular, illegal, or extra-constitutional change at the top. So let's think of revolutions. Revolutions are these mass movements. They're violent. They include some of the classical cases that most folks are familiar with like the French Revolution or the Russian or Iranian. Other examples include the Cuban or Mexican revolutions. And then we can think of the Arab Spring Revolutions from 2011 and we might think about uh, 2011 and 12. And the ones that come to mind there are Egypt and Tunisia and stillborn revolutions in Syria, for example, or Lebanon. That's different from a civil war, which is uh, a more protracted struggle that's a little bit more organized between factions or armies, uh, rebels versus governments, uh, or even two armies, like in the case of the civil war in the United States. Uh, and, and they're similar to revolutions, uh, but in this case, it is a pitched battle where there's a more organized uh, military tactics Uh, uh, taking place to either take over the central government or to for one region or or, uh, to secede from the rest of the country and gain political sovereignty. Uh, The Sandinistas in Nicaragua come to mind. Uh, Some folks might call that a revolution, but that's more of a a civil war that went on for decades there uh, to displace um, uh, the regime that was empowered there. Uh, We might think of foreign interventions, like when the USSR invaded Poland, Hungary, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia after uh, the end of uh, World War II. Or we might think of what the Nazi regime did in some of those same countries before that. Uh, uh, We might think of the United States and Iraq. That would be another example from 2003. And then we get to coups. So why did I make this distinction? Well, a coup has a... Much lighter footprint than a revolution, a civil war, or a foreign intervention, where the masses are not involved at all, where one executive replaces another with force or the threat of force, and where the military is involved. Uh, So that's what a coup is. And I could define auto-coup for you if you'd like, if that makes sense now.
0: Sure. Yeah. Go for autocou because that's that's a phenomenon that uh, political scientists have studied and, and that that is uh, filtering into the language about perhaps what Trump is attempting as well. So why don't you yeah, define autocou for us?
1: Well, here's the deal with autocous. They're easy to define in theory, but in practice, they're really hard to identify. And that's because they are murky situations where the fog of war, uh, as a metaphor, not that there is a war, but the fog of confusion makes it difficult, at least in real time, to figure out what's happening. It's only ex post that it becomes easier. Let me actually, before I define it, though, I want to make a point that there's very few that academics agree on as real cases of auto coups. Um, So let's just think the modern period. Let's think the last 250 years, okay? Hitler in 1933 is agreed uh, upon. Peru in 1992, when Alberto Fujimori dissolves Congress in the judiciary. I would say Turkey, after the uh, failed coup attempt against Erdogan in two thousand and fifteen. Hungary today, uh, under Viktor Orban, uh, there are a, there's a lot of evidence that that is in the ballpark of an auto coup. I would say Bolivia, before Morales leaves power, uh, he left for Mexico, has now returned. Uh, to Bolivia, but uh, is exiled to Mexico last year. And Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, I think, are clear or at least bordering on clear examples of coups. So that's very few uh, um, data points, right? And the reason for that is that a coup is when an executive that's duly elected in a democratic system finds a way to usurp authority from other branches of government or do something extra constitutional to give him or herself, more power. And usually it happens under um, clauses in the constitution that give that executive extraordinary powers due to a state of of emergency. Fujimori would be a good example in Peru fighting the Sendero Luminoso uh, left-wing insurgency. Um, Turkey would be a good example after the failed coup that the military was involved to displace Erdogan. Hitler, you know may, way better than I do about what happened under Weimar and how he was able to, to um, uh, arrogate powers for himself. So I'll let you speak to that if you'd like. But that's what an autocoup is. And it's really difficult for researchers to figure out ex ante or in real time if something is an autocoup because presidents are really good at using a state of emergency to consolidate power including Franklin Roosevelt during World War II, if you want to put it that way, in the United States with the internment of Japanese Americans, for example. Um, so that's what auto-coups are. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so so what I'm hearing you say is a coup. coup is a seizure of, of government or state, particularly of the executive branch, by some other force, and it's illegal. It's often done with the military. It's, it's sometimes more violent than others, but it's at least with the threat of violence, if not actual realized violence. And auto-coups, and I, and I agree that they're complicated, auto-coups are when, the reason it's an auto-coup or a self-coup is it's a coup against, it's not so much against the executive in office, it's the executive in office basically performs a coup against the institutions that they govern by increasing their ability to um, to govern over or break the law or create new laws or or go around the constitution to increase their power, but they're already actually in office.
1: And what's really hard for researchers, let alone folks to understand that aren't academics, is that usually the first step is extraordinary powers granted by the constitution. That's what makes it such a bizarro situation. Uh, So it's hard to draw the line, like, okay, if you have emergency powers, then doesn't that mean you can suspend the Constitution and dissolve Congress? Well, sometimes the courts have to decide that. Well, what if you dissolve the court? Well, then we're really in a sticky wicket, right?
0: Right. Uh, And I I think that's – yeah, go ahead.
1: I want to make one more point about regular coups, so so to speak, not auto coups. The modal way in which dictators replace each other is through a coup like a dictator will replace another dictator with the military or with violence or the threat of violence. Uh, That's a pretty clear descriptive fact, and I've adduced evidence for this in some of my work, and so have many other researchers. But I want to make clear that coups overthrowing elected governments are very, very rare. I'm actually going to name them just so we get in our head. I think it would be a public service to get in our head how rare Regular coups are against democracies. And then I gave you the very few cases of auto coups. So Spain in 1923, this was before uh, Franco, by the way. um, This was uh, Garcia Prieto is um, uh, displaced uh, by the military. This was not Franco involved here. Iran in 1953 is a, a famous case with Mossadegh. Uh, uh, where supposedly the CIA and British Petroleum were involved uh, to displace him. Guatemala in 1954, Arbenz. Uh, Again, the CIA was said to have a role. Brazil in 1964, Goulart. Uh, Greece in 1967, Papandreou. Chile in 1973, Salvador Allende, again with the CIA supposedly involved, or at least Henry Kissinger uh, under the Nixon administration. Pakistan in 1999, uh, Nawaz Sharif, Thailand in 2006, Sinawatra, and then Turkey, there have been several coups by the military after World War II in 1960, 71, 80, and a soft coup, so to speak, in 1997, where there was a resignation uh, by a, a sitting prime minister with the fear of a uh, uh, intervention by the military. So that's another thing to keep in mind is like whether it's an auto coup that we just finished talking about or the first set of uh, cases we discussed in terms of the swift use by the military of its uh, coercive capabilities to displace uh, someone in office, elected governments, in terms of the way they transition, coups are incredibly, exceedingly rare.
0: So can I then say why we're not witnessing a coup right now in the United States? Of course. Here's why. Number one, Donald Trump is still the head of state. He's still he's still performing his constitutional duties as president, and that doesn't change until January twentieth. Okay, so that, that's an important thing to remember. The United States, for a variety of reasons, has a very long transition process, but his his he, he is still the uh, the the president and the commander in chief, and so he's he's you know at least by title performing his constitutional duties. That's number one. Number two is if if a side to an election doesn't agree that they lost the election, that is not a coup. That just means that they don't understand reality, okay? So that's what's happening. Now, the fear is then, is his uh, unwillingness to concede and admit publicly that he lost the election, although he hasn't, of course, admitted it privately, um, does that constitute a coup? Well, Victor, think about all the things you just listed. Is Is he saying that he will not leave office, No. Does it matter if he says he's not going to leave office? No. Because the presidential administration expires at noon on January 20th, and a new president is is inaugurated. Even if Trump had won re-election, he would still have his administration expire, and he would have to be re-elected. So there's no constitutional mandate that allows his administration to exist beyond January 20th. So then you have to ask yourself, is he doing what you described with the auto coup, which is either using constitutional means to basically abrogate the election, to uh, ignore its results, to prevent the electoral college from meeting, um, from to prevent Congress from meeting. And does he actually have that legal power in the constitution or is he making moves to fundamentally go around the constitution and break a bunch of law and, and, and do extra legal things um, regardless of what the constitution says? And the answer is no in both cases, right? He is saying that He wants to wait for the vote count to be concluded and he is challenging some of those those vote counts, which he has every legal right to do, even if they're frivolous or even if they're not made in good faith. But until he basically somehow prevents the electoral college from from meeting and casting its electors or somehow prevents the chief justice of the Supreme Court from inaugurating a new president in January 20th, I don't see evidence of a coup, auto or otherwise, do you? No,
1: but here is, if I can push back, let's just entertain maybe or give a benefit of the doubt to folks that are using that language. Maybe what they mean is they have a theory of how coups happen. And their theory is that when the incumbent breaches fundamental norms about the transition, you might pave the way for a coup. Maybe that's what we could read into this. So it could be the failure to do what most modern Presidents have done which is to throw in the towel once the networks use their um, projections to declare a winner before cer uh, next Trump and see uh, um, people have in mind what are your thoughts on that
0: well I think a couple things I don't really care about norms I care about laws um, and so yeah it's been a norm for the most part um, that American politicians when they lose elections concede but it's it but it hasn't been true all the time. Um, Matt Bevin refused to concede and admit that he lost in the Kentucky gu- gubernatorial race in 2019. Other presidential candidates in the past, you know, in eighteen seventy six, neither side conceded and they went down to the wire. So it's uh, there's actually some precedent for not conceding. That's number one. Number two is uh, uh, one side conceding or not has no legal bearing. And so even if he's violating the norm of the loser conceding, my worry would be, is he violating the law about what that, that means? And there, I think we actually have some concrete evidence that there is some material damage being done to the transition insofar as the General Services Administration has not um, has not admitted the, tra- you know, has not agreed to this and, and funded the Biden uh, transition. Um, you could make an argument on national security that uh, Biden should start receiving those daily briefings and that, that's being prevented by uh, Trump refusing to concede the long term it really doesn't i mean one of the strengths of the american system in the long term is it, we don't determine the winner of an election by what either candidate says we determine by the certified vote count that has legal meaning and and so to me even if we were to say trump is going to attempt a coup we would still have to wait until later in november uh, when uh, state ballot counts are certified, we'd have to wait for the legal process to play itself out. And we'd have to wait to see what his response is to the electoral college casting its votes on December 14. But short of that, I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't see it.
1: Right. And again, a theory about a coup is different than whether a coup is happening. Uh, and uh, I think the jury is out. Again, there's so few cases of Coups against elected governments and auto coups that you could even adjudicate such a theory in my mind. It's just the social scientific point of view on it. But yeah, I I see your point exactly.
0: Well, Uh, let's go. So let's go to the role. I mean, let me just quickly also say the role of the military. The I think one of the things that Americans may not understand is that the, the role legally, but also with respect to coups that militaries have played, for instance, in Latin America is very different than the role the military can ever play in domestic politics in the United States. So can you talk a little bit about how the military has and played a role in Latin America and why, why that's relevant for understanding those cases?
1: Sure. Um, you know, just very, uh, in a very uh, generic sense, you know, because there's a lot of variation in Latin America across place and time, but the military is a political actor, usually the most legitimate and strongest political actor in what have been historically relatively weak states, for the most part, authoritarian countries. There have been uh, waves of democracy during different periods. And if we look at the map today, most countries are democratic, but for most of Latin American history, uh, what you lo- see is dictatorship. And so the military's role has been as a political player. Uh, That's pretty strong, and that can call shots. Uh, This was uh, very uh, much the case during the Cold War, uh, when uh, different militaries got support from either the United States or the Soviet Union, uh, and in a sense, uh, were doing their bidding, or at least were manipulating them for their own ends. Uh, You can think of uh, the Argentine military junta in the late 70s, Pinochet in Chile, uh, in the 70s, as well, uh, the Uruguayan uh, military, as well, in the 1980s, uh, that had direct uh, uh, control of the government. Um, another thing I'd say about the military: it's also a very important economic actor in a lot of uh, Latin American countries. But I want to say not only in Latin American countries, in developing countries in general, and that tradition continues today. Actually, less so in Latin America and more outside of it. If you think of the military's control of the commanding heights of the economy, that's the case in Egypt under Mubarak and now Sisi. In Burma, uh, the military still has a lot of huge stakes in the economy. In Turkey during uh, the Cold War, Pakistan today, Iran today. So that is something that is less typical today of the military, but it certainly was the case. Let's say up until the 1970s, and in a situation like Mexico, the military, uh, in terms of its sotto voce role in the drug trade, has been very important for getting um, some of the illicit rents from the drug trade in its pocket, and so it's been an uh, important economic actor in that respect. So that's just broad brushstrokes, some sweeping, you know, um, details on the military. I can bore into any one case if you'd like or if you have a more specific question about their role. But in terms of kingmakers, for sure, uh, as I mentioned, most of the coups happen under dictatorship to displace one unelected executive with another or, or an executive that wins through fraudulent, fraudulent elections. And in Latin America, that's definitely uh, been the case, mostly under dictatorship. As I mentioned, the handful of cases uh, where a, um, the military displaces an elected leader, there's about four of those.
0: Yeah, and I and I think, you know, that's a great way to characterize the role that militaries play in other countries' Poli- politics. And in in the military in the United States does not play that role uh, at all. The military is a non-political entity. It does not determine who the president is. Um, I think people are looking at the wrong institution if they want to see how this plays out. Now, I think the courts and the legislature Um, are where I would look if I thought about ways that you could try to uh, undermine a fair vote count or things like that. That's what we saw in Florida in 2000. But the military does not intervene in American politics to support a sitting incumbent president, Um, you know, historically. But right now, the military, the Joint Chiefs has made that clear. General Milley has made that clear. And moreover, I think what people forget is that even though the president, the president, the executive branch of the United States is very strong in its ability to use military force abroad. I mean, we know kind of almost without needing a lot of uh, even congressional approval to do that. It doesn't use that military on U.S. soil. And in fact, the president is, is fairly weak in the U.S. system and his ability to do that because it's the governors that run um, are the chief law enforcement officers at the state level. So it's unclear exactly where the president would get this authority from, legally speaking, but it's also not clear that the the military is a political animal or beast that is simply going to go along with what he asked them to do, particularly when it comes to firing on their own citizens. I just don't see it.
1: Well, there is the fear that, uh, you know, the uh, Secretary of Defense, Mike Esper, uh, was fired and that 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 somehow could politicize the military, but that's on the civilian side. And, and the fear is that that was retribution for not necessarily being a steadfast Trump loyalist and speaking truth to power when it came to President Trump's desires to unleash the military on some of the protests in Washington, D.C. over racial justice after George Floyd. But But again, to me, and you would know better than I... That's a civilian uh, uh, office in the cabinet, and that's inherently political, and it seems that presidents have, at their pleasure, uh, uh, had um, the Secretary of Defense either serve or or be let go, and, and if folks aren't loyal or carrying out the orders of the president, usually that's a passport to, or a ticket to getting a pink slip. So, I don't know about that, but I've heard that worry at least in the last few days.
0: Well, so one one of the things in your book with Mike that you guys look at is not just coups as a way to think about transitions between regime types, but more broadly thinking about going from authoritarian regimes to democratic regimes or democratic regimes to authoritarian regimes. You guys really highlight the role of elite actors in making that transition possible, as well as citizens and the masses and what their role is. And so I wonder, one of the things that people are worried about right now is the role that Republican elected officials and the, the Republican Party establishment are playing in perhaps um, giving the president a window to think that he can overturn the results of an election. But I would say more broadly, how should we be thinking about the role of elites in these transition moments?
1: Under democracy, it's less important on average under dictatorship it's the most important thing because the masses uh don't have suffrage and they are probably repressed or there's the threat that they could be repressed they don't have civil liberties uh and they're not organized um and if there are political parties they're completely manipulated uh or uh, uh by the elites or do the bidding of the elites so under democracy, in some democracies, the elites matter more than others, depending on the institutions that decide elections. When there are indirect elections, like the electoral college, elites will matter more because they're an intermediary between the uh, votes cast by the people and the actual uh, decisions in terms of who becomes the executive. But uh, electoral colleges and indirect elections, although they were very uh, typical ways of doing business in, let's say, Western Europe, even during the 19th century, they're must, much less important now. Uh, in Argentina, there was an electoral college up, up until recently, but uh, that's the exception that proves the rule. So, again, under democracy, you know, it varies, it depends. A lot of it is informal. If you think about political parties headed by elites, I guess that's one way in which they're power brokers. But a lot of times, uh, those political parties are democratized in terms of there being elections in primaries to pick the candidates, or there being more power delegated to the people when it comes to how political parties are run. So it's really an open-ended question. But I have to say, compared to dictatorships, there's no question. The only game in town is what elites want and what elites do. That doesn't mean there aren't factions. Uh, Mike and I, my book with Mike is all about the factions in dictatorships, in terms of the elites and what different factions want. And when some want to move to democracy versus some want to stay within a dictatorship, let's say, or they have different visions of what a democracy should look like.
0: So I think this is important because I think what it does, it's very good because I think one of the things that's hard for Americans to remember is we are engagement with politics is very often with a political party or mediated through a political party. And so I think you're, you're right that parties in a democracy matter much less to how transitions happen as opposed to the other institutions. But I think because our engagement is with political parties, we um, project onto the Democrats and the Republicans, the role that they play in getting us through transitions and they actually don't get us, they don't play any role, right? It doesn't matter if Mitch McConnell uh, congratulates Joe Biden in terms of the outcome of the election. It doesn't matter what Kevin McCarthy says. It doesn't even matter what Trump himself says like that. So the party can, um, can agree that Trump lost or not, and and the elites can congratulate Biden or not, but it's going to have materially no effect on the outcome. Definitely. I think that's an important distinction. So what then about the role of the masses? How do we think about what the role of the masses is in a transition between you know, presidents or regimes after potentially they have voted? Or if you're going from dictatorship to democracy, they haven't voted and now they may be voting for the first time.
1: Well, let me stick to dictatorship. I'll let you handle the democracy because that's your specialty, and you are a a renowned expert on elections in new democracies, weak democracies, democracies that have yet to consolidate. But I will tell you that for dictatorships, again, the bottom line in my message is that the masses don't matter that much, or if they matter, it's a derivative function that's been orchestrated by the elites who have solved their fundamental collective action problem. That's a fancy word for saying they've got their stuff together. They're the ones running the shots. They're the ones running the infrastructure of the government. They're the ones commanding the political parties or the military. They're the ones mobilizing the citizens. Uh, And so the citizens play second fiddle. Now, there are constitutional conventions that will transition a dictatorship to a democracy. And there are opportunities for citizens to participate, but they're very restricted opportunities. Uh, And there's, in a sense, uh, an hourglass shape where their role is filtered through the uh, gatekeeping function of the elites under authoritarianism. And often uh, those elites, if they decide that what's best is to transition and use free and fair elections to some kind of democratic government, They've engineered a process sometimes for decades uh, under uh, Pinochet in Chile, for example. The transition really started as soon as he obtained power from Salvador Allende in 1974. Uh, Many years of grooming to create a constitution in 1980, and then an exit finally in 1989. Even in Tunisia where the um, transition was very compressed Let's say after the revolution in 2011, uh, Ben Ali flees after 23 years in power. We see the forces that were loyal to him under the CDR party take over in in short order and start to orchestrate a transition on friendly terms for the, the folks that were elites under the Ben Ali regime. Uh, So that's a compressed timetable versus the Chilean one. In the Mexican case, you can think about the Constitution of 1917, allowing the PRI party that monopolized power there until 2000 to have a very leisurely transition out and on the eve of transition to ram through a bunch of uh, reforms and amendments that would actually help smooth out the process for them afterwards. And one of the big things dictators and their henchmen and their supporters want is to Uh, be secure from legal repercussions or from other punishments. Uh, So a lot of the craftsmanship, if you will, that goes into these constitutions and transition moments are all about protection from prosecution, from punishment.
0: Right, and and that can be literal prosecution of, say, human rights violations or murder or things like that, but it can also be fear of losing access to economic rents and resources, and not just for perhaps the dictator's family or close allies, but for the elite groups or or segments of society that have supported them thus far. There's going to be a shift, right? There's going to be a shift in the distribution of wealth and rents if they lose office, potentially.
1: Absolutely, but they can play their cards right and avoid that. So I mentioned Pinochet and all of his supporters. Many of them go on to serve important functions in the economy or in the government. Uh, some of them take over banks. Some of them ta- uh, become senators uh, that are appointed by Pinochet under the Constitution uh, in 1980, even though it's a democracy. Some of them join the uh, Chilean Central Bank uh, uh, and the uh, board of directors of important firms uh, after they're privatized by Pinochet. In the case of uh, Chun Juan, the last South Korean military dictator, He uh, leaves office uh, uh, after imposing a constitution in 1981. He leaves in the late 80s. uh, And he's found guilty of mutiny, insurrection, and bribery. But he has constitutional protections and also has uh, judicial protections. And it allows him to keep hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in Swiss bank accounts or even parked in Seoul in secret offshore companies as well. And, and prosecutors can never get him or his family. In fact, he's known for playing golf at exclusive clubs and being seen jet setting every once in a while in South Korea. In the case of Brazil, we have key figures after the military dictatorship, uh, Figueredo's regime in 1984, when they leave power in, uh, after that in the 80s, they're able to uh, start a process Starting in, the, in 84, to protect themselves, the foreign minister of that regime becomes ambassador to Italy in the, under democracy, later joins the International Monetary Fund. The industry and commerce minister is elected mayor of Minas Novas and becomes president of the develop bank, development bank of Minas Gerais in that state. The development minister is elected as a senator and serves as the minister of justice under President Fernando Collor. So... Um, What's interesting is if you play it right and you have the right strategy, at least under dictatorship, you might be protected under democracy. It really depends. And, but let's, but let's yeah, look ahead. at the
0: alternative where the masses do play a big role, because I, I think you're right in describing how and why elites try to have these what we refer to as pacted transitions to get themselves protected if, it, if they're going from dictatorship to democracy, but the problem is why then do so many dictators put this off? So if you think of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, um, basically is it's not an elite transition that happens, it's the Arab Spring The people take to, to the streets of, of Cairo and Alexandria and elsewhere, they overthrow his regime. And then you, know, you remember the weekend at Bernie's game that they would always play with Mubarak for years. It was like, is he alive? Is he dead? Did he die in jail? But he didn't, he right. could have had a pact of transition and gotten himself out of it and he avoided it. And then he was overthrown uh, by mass action in the streets.
1: Absolutely, you're, you're right. Uh, when Mike and I crunch the numbers, we find that you're 25% less likely to be punished in office if you are able to game the system through a constitution or a pact of transition. But it's not always the case that you're able to avoid justice for one. And it's not always the case that you can manipulate the um, transition process to your advantage. Like you said, there could be a revolution, there could be a surprise, there could be uh, some kind of uh, problem where you don't have control over what happens, right? Uh, And so, if that happens, you're likely to die or be uh, uh, exiled or be thrown in jail. Uh, And there are so many examples of that happening under dictatorship. We could go to Mubarak, as you said, in Egypt, who was jailed between 2011. Sorry, who was jailed after uh, he relinquishes uh, uh, power between 2011 and 2017. Napoleon is a famous example in France. He's exiled to an island and dies six years later. Saddam Hussein in Iraq, obviously, after a foreign intervention. We have Idi Amin in uh, Uganda. We have um, Mobutu in Congo, Ceausescu in Romania that's executed by a firing squad after a popular revolution. Gaddafi is tortured by a mob, shot and dragged through the streets of Sirte's hometown after the uh, uh, Arab Spring Revolution in Libya. Hitler obviously commits suicide after the allies take over Berlin. And we have Valentine Stre- Streiser in uh, Sierra Leone. You might know this case better than me. I don't know if I pronounce his name correctly. Strasser, th- yeah. Strasser, uh, I believe that at last count, he was a poor farmer on the outskirts of the presidential palace somewhere, barely eking out a living. I don't know if he's still alive or what's happened to him. So not everybody succeeds. Uh, there are plenty of cases of failure. It really depends on the ability to be a good strategist and a bun- and on the ability of the conditions on the ground to favor an orchestrated, pacted, or negotiated transition with some kind of constitution or at least judicial protection after you leave power.
0: But one of the fears I think that people have on that question in the United States right now is whether or not the president can rely on his own supporters in whatever that maneuver is. And there's this sort of uh, hysteria in the media that I think is... uh, Placing an important role about those who turned out for Donald Trump, which were you know over seventy million people, but you know a majority who turned out didn't vote for him, and a majority of, Amer- of Americans um, overall. If you're talking three hundred thirty million people, didn't vote for him, um, and and so then what in these moments of uncertainty and transition, then what is the role of the the mobilizing force of the base of a of a of a person's uh, ability to rely on that that constituency to help them negotiate and bargain things, even potentially to stay in power. Well,
1: again, I'm going to let you tell us about democracy, but I'll say under dictatorship, you have to have control over the government to do this. I mean, to call con- con- constituent assembly or a constitutional convention to have elections that ratify that, like uh, again, Pinochet in 1981 has a plebiscite for his constitution, which was imposed on the Chilean people in a sense. I mean, you've got to have a firm grip, Uh, and even then it's not easy, and you've got to have the, the support of the economic elite, and the economic elite have to feel safe enough to transition so that their rents will be protected under democracy. They're going to want a corrupt and crony capitalist system under democracy that protects their profits, and if you can signal credibly to them that, guys, we're in this together, let's exit in a pacted way now before we lose our head or before there's a guillotine out to get us in the public square, if you can do that, then fine, you're protected. You're going to be fine. Seems to me, though, that in a democracy, you just don't control these things. You don't control the commanding heights of the economy. Uh, You don't. uh, There are a lot more factions economically in dictatorships. It's kind of a clearer picture. Uh, Economies tend to be less sophisticated, and, and there are divisions, but it's a a bit clearer who lines up with the dictator. It's usually the people who rely on friendly policy for their rents and privileges. So it's it's clear cut who the allies are are there. In a democracy, it just seems almost impossible, short of, as we were saying, an auto coup, to actually be able to help yourself much. Um, Now, maybe with a pardon or something like that, or it could be that the political calculus of the new government is to not go after you because it's just bad politics. It could bog them down. So at the executive level with uh, president-elect Joe Biden, how much appetite is there to really go after uh, outgoing President Trump when COVID-19 and the economic recession and all these other kinds of issues like healthcare are, are front and center? So I would ask you, what are your thoughts in a democracy in terms of what could be done by incumbents who fear prosecution or or punishment?
0: Well, I think there, I, I think, particularly in America, where people sort of misunderstand the role of business and economics in politics because of sort of our bizarre approach to campaign financing. I think they they don't understand a a subtle point that you just made, which is that yes, all manner of business may donate to both sides, and and all manner of business will have an incentive to see perhaps a Democrat or a Republican in the White House um, who will then craft policies that affect that business or that sector. But no matter who you are in a democracy, instability is bad for business, right? And so no business is going to have an incentive either to stoke and, and, and fan the flames of, say, right-wing militias going out on the streets and, and trying to threaten violence if, if Trump refuses to concede, or conversely, even peaceful legal protests on, on the left. I mean, Victor, you and I live in Seattle. We saw the economic hit that businesses in Seattle took uh, during the protest for racial justice over the summer. Right? They don't want protest out there. They want to move on, even if their side lost. They don't like their business and their ability to conduct e- in exchange and economic transactions to be hindered by um, the, a political impasse to which one or both sides is not liking what's happening. Right, Capitalism requires there to be sort of a, a steady hand of government that is not interrupting the ability for capitalists to, to turn a profit. And so I don't see business on either side coming down in such a way that people need to feel threatened by business being what's gonna intervene in this instance and declare the winner. I just don't think that's gonna happen.
1: Well, yeah, one thing to just set straight about dictatorships where irregular transfers of powers, whether they be coups, revolutions, civil wars, or whatever, are the modal way in which power transfers hands from one executive to another. The economies in those uh, systems are much different. Uh, let me go through some examples just so listeners get a sense. Okay? Germany's industrialization under Bismarck was incredibly concentrated and where political actors had a big role to play with the allocation of credit through banks, for example. Hitler's Germany recreates that decades later after, uh, during World War II. The corporatist experiments or fascist experiments, if you will, in Italy, Spain, and Portugal uh, under uh, uh, fascism after the Great Depression, these were also highly concentrated, simpler economies. They were industrialized, but where the government had a very heavy hand to play, whether it be tariffs or allocating credit or capital or even having a direct role on the board of directors of some of these corporations. Mexico under Porfirio Diaz, and again under the PRI between uh, 1928 and and 2000, a very heavily concentrated economy where the players in government uh, rotated in and out of uh, different corporations. There were interlocking directorships uh, and also controlled the banks. The banks were at some points nationalized or in a de facto way controlled by the government. Argentina under Perón is another example where the government is in cahoots with business and it's very uh, cozy and has direct control sometimes, even though it's not a communist system, there's a lot of nationalized sectors of the economy. And I mentioned other examples where the military has a large role to play, uh, Egypt today under Sisi, Burma and Myanmar, um, Turkey during the Cold War at least, Pakistan today, Iran, and if you think of non-military uh, uh, situations where the government has an outsized role to play and manipulates the economy or, or economic actors depend on the government's good favor uh, and therefore have skin in the game in terms of who the incumbent is, China, Malaysia, Russia, Venezuela today. Uh, actually, the military would be another example of Venezuela that is uh, eating at the trough, so to speak, uh, requires the government's uh, regulations and policies to favor them. And a lot of it is illicit uh, through drugs or contraband in terms of uh, weapons and the like. So that's just something to realize. We have an amazingly sophisticated, diversified uh, economy, highly specialized, not very concentrated um, in some sectors perhaps. Uh, but not, not incredibly concentrated, in fact, if you think about history or if you think about other countries, with a banking sector that's completely separate from the government, albeit regulated by it, but with an independent central bank, and with a very vibrant stock market. So the stock market itself is a check, so to speak, on the government in that sense, or uh, is a, a, a allows autonomy for some of the corporations or, or the business sector.
0: Well, I also think a a legitimately expressed concern about the worry of the transition now in the United States, going back to the question of citizens, is that Trump supporters will just agree with with him declaring victory or re- refusing to concede, and that that will, in the short term potentially lead to instability or protest. But in the long term, it's quote, unquote, bad for democracy if if the side that lost, just doesn't believe that the electoral institutions were fair and that the transition of power was legitimate. And I think that's an honest concern. The problem is, is there's no factual basis for it. So can I share some data with you, Victor? Yeah, of course. So I think people are misinterpreting and misaligning the degree of misinformation that was sent out before the election or the degree to which Americans are just susceptible to weaponized information or or disinformation before the election with who actually believes what Trump is saying right now. So Ipsos and Reuters did a poll this week where they actually asked Americans who they thought won the election. 79% said that Biden won the election. 13% said the election had not been yet decided, which is actually technically correct. But only 3% said that Trump won the election. So I just failed to see where this pocket of, of support, even among Trump supporters is, that believe that, this, that he won the election. I just don't see it. Even if you add that 3% that think he won to the 13% that think it hasn't been decided, it's still the case that a majority of Trump supporters actually understand that he did not win the election, to say nothing of Biden supporters. And so, you know, is it ideal? No. But moving forward, do I think that this is what's most potentially damaging to democracy? Not really. I just don't see it.
1: Well, you know, uh, yeah, it's hard to know. This goes to a debate about the importance of norms and culture and uh, informal institutions in democratic consolidation and in peaceful transfers of power. And it is hard to figure out empirically how to judge that theory, right?
0: I mean, first of all, we've had elections that the losing side didn't really think the, le- the outcome was legitimate at all. I mean, the United States always has a losing side to elections. Election fraud is deep in its, its, its history and, and elites rigging at the top and people just kind of having to deal with that result and democracy has survived. I mean, I don't think Democrats thought that, that George W. Bush legitimately won in 2000. But you live to fight another day. Right. So your side lost this time, either for for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. And so you you live to fight another day. So I I, and by the way, we know that the 2016 election um, had been hacked that, you know, but for Russian interference, Trump may not have been elected president. Every Democrat knows that, but they still went out to try to win in 2020. They didn't just give up on democracy.
1: So what is your thought on this? Uh, some people worry that like with Weimar before Hitler, there was uh, the delegitimization of institutions. And a lot of that was rhetorical and had to do with norms and culture. Are folks choosing an outlier and and their worst fears are being projected onto our system that's much more robust? What it, That example is always trotted out. And, and I've been hearing it now with the fact that Trump is stonewalling with the um, acceptance or concession. Uh,
0: Well, I think that would be a real fear if half of this country thought that he won the election. Um, So I think what happened with Weimar is is not so much that people didn't believe in the institutions. The institutions were very inchoate. There there wasn't necessarily a lot to believe in because the institutions were such a mess and hadn't consolidated. I don't think that's what's happening in this country. But what happened in in, in terms of polarization, which is perhaps where the analogy is useful, is that you not only had about a third of the country on the far right supporting eventually the the Nazi party, you had a third of the country on the far left in the Weimar Republic supporting, you know, essentially communist or far left socialists. And in that type of polarization, it's not so much that they don't agree on things, it's that the political project that they wanna see implemented is fundamentally not democratic, right? Like if you're trying to recreate uh, a fascist takeover of power, like in Italy, or you're trying to recreate the communist, the the Leninist revolution in, in Russia, you are explicitly saying you're not supporting democracy. I think, you know, it's probably hard for Democrats to believe this, but I think it appears, at least in this question, that Republicans may not like the result. They may not. They may not, you know, they're not going to become Democrats tomorrow and support the Democratic Party. But this isn't suggestive to me that they're fundamentally saying they reject this entire system. It just suggests to me that, yeah, you know, it's a little bit messy. It's a little bit hard to understand. But actually, very few people, even among the supporters of the president, are saying that they're willing to sort of take that step and support a truly anti-democratic takeover of the government.
1: Fair enough. You know, again, as a social scientist, it's just hard to articulate, operationalize, and test the hypothesis about the norms. And in this case, it's a subspecies, uh, not democracy itself, but the actual transition moment and whether that then leaches into the machinery of democracy during the governance right uh, uh, step okay. once succession's uh, over with. So uh, I think the jury's still out. Um, I, I don't know personally, I'm agnostic. Uh, I do think it's dangerous to always cherry pick one case out of thousands and thousands. Uh, It depends how you define the denominator, right? Is it a year? Is it an electoral episode? Is it a longer period of time? But the denominator is huge, and we can't just use Weimer every time. I mean, that's an N of one to articulate every problem or fear we might have about our democracy. Maybe that's just not the right analogy.
0: Well, I think being worried about partisan polarization as being unhealthy for democracy because then it makes it hard both to win for moderates but it also Mm -hmm. makes policymaking hard, particularly if you have divided government. I I think that's a real concern and I, I can see that being there. But I think having partisan polarization around which we can disagree on policy but try to win elections so that our side is able to implement and fight for the policies we care about is very different than polarization around whether or not we agree to democracy in the first instance. Uh And that, so I think people are misinterpreting. I think they're seeing the first thing, but interpreting it as the second thing. And I, I, I think that's a little bit unfair and dangerous. It doesn't mean it doesn't change in the future, but I don't really think that's what's going on.
1: Let me ask you a question. From your knowledge of developing country democracies that are young democracies that might not be consolidated, Uh, Or do you see any analogies that are useful with incumbents that fail to to concede, but yet there's no problem afterwards or the failure to concede and step down uh, swiftly does create issues or, you know, you can't run regressions right now, obviously. But just thinking about it, what's your view of, of how this matters, if at all?
0: Well, I think in other countries, it actually does matter legally if one side concedes or not. So I think that's one of the differences. So in the U.S. system, there's no legal meaning for one side conceding or not. That's not how the process plays itself out. But that's not true in other countries. In other countries, it actually does require a concession or it requires some um, act on the part of the incumbent to give up the reins of power and, and transfer it to somebody else. Um, like I said, in the United States on January 20th, an administration expires and a new administration is sworn in. It doesn't matter what the incumbent says or thinks about that. That's, that's the process. But in other countries, it, it does matter. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is, I think what we see in other countries is if a side to an election um, believes that it was rigged, we're usually talking about the opposition against the incumbent. They think the incumbent rigged and the opposition legitimately won. This is what's going on in the Ivory Coast right now with what happened last month in their election, they may set up something like a parallel or a shadow government that is basically not conceding, not respecting the authority or legitimacy of the incumbent and then creating a parallel structure where they appoint cabinets and they continue to kind of engage in mass action or draw on support of the masses to support that, in which case you sort of have a stalemate where you just have two different executives. And I that that is definitely a problem in other countries. We've seen this happen in Kenya. We're seeing it right now in the Ivory Coast. It may happen in Guinea. Um, and and that's not a good thing because then you know you a, gov- a country can't be governed with two different people or institutions claiming the executive. That's just not how it works. And I think that is a real problem. I just don't think that Trump is going to be able to do that. I don't think he has the resources to do that. He doesn't have the mass support that would be needed. He doesn't have the constitutional ability to do that. And he's I. Even though Republicans aren't being explicit in um, arguing against him right now, I don't think the Republican establishment would even even get close to supporting such a thing if it came to it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Victor, one of the things that I think we should be paying attention to, which is the real threat, is, and here I'm interested to hear your kind of comparative knowledge on this, is not so much about what Republicans believe about this process after January 20th, or even the degree to which we can debate whether or not Trump has the ability to have a coup or not a coup. But let's assume he knows he's lost. Let's assume he he, he will physically be out of the White House come January 20th. And let's assume that he he does or doesn't have some ability to continue to govern, um, certainly the executive branch, like you said, with the firing of Mark Esper, but he may be able to rely on some uh, Republican allies at the state or congressional level to help him. What can he do in this transition moment between now and January 20th that really could hurt institutions in the system? And what have you learned from other countries about incumbents that knew they were on their way out and what they sort of did in their final days?
1: That's a tough one. Um, You know, I I might come up with a uh, goose egg on this in that I don't think there's any case I can point to where it mattered, where we have... In a democracy, one elected official being a spoiled child or throwing a temper tantrum and stonewalling or doing things like firing insiders, purging at the last minute. like To me, the examples that come to mind are about policy, like what are the policies you can ram through? Uh, okay but I, but I also mean
0: even if it's dictatorships what are what are dictators you know, able to do in those last days
1: well, they're able to protect themselves and their families that's for sure with some final constitutional engineering that can let's say immunize them from prosecution. Another thing they can do they can privatize uh, uh government owned and run businesses and uh, do it in a way that advantages the economic elites they're in cahoots with or their supporters. Um, And by supporters, I don't mean the people, I mean insiders. So they can do things like that. Chile, again, is an example where Pinochet does this on the eve of transition uh, in 1989. Um, In the Mexican case, before Vicente Fox uh, uh, rises to power, we see the PRI Uh, Doing a lot of things behind the scenes that uh, give them cover to protect their wealth and some of the um, uh, illicit networks they had forged with drug traffickers and the like. You know, Turkey comes to mind with military officers also getting immunity. Argentina, before the transition to democracy in 1982 a lot of military officials finding ways to protect their um, personal security in terms of prosecution and the like, and some of their ill-gotten wealth. So this is the kind of stuff, but it's not necessarily qualitatively different in that this is what dictators do from day one. It's just that they might read the tea leaves and realize is on its way, or they might actually engineer a democratic transition on friendly terms, and this was all part of the plan, And they're just doing a lot of stuff uh, on the eve because that's when it most counts and when they have the most information about how to actually protect themselves.
0: Uh, If Trump Trump and his family are are more constrained by existing laws and constitutional structures, but they have the same impulse as an authoritarian who realizes that they they may pay a very heavy price once they're no longer in office, how do we understand what Trump is going to do in the next few weeks with precisely the same sort of... uh, strategic logic of an authoritarian, but being constrained somewhat constitutionally by what he can and cannot do.
1: I mean, you know, that's where I would defer to your knowledge of of the situation more than my own. I could just game out very generic moves, but I don't think they're a good fit for the idiosyncrasies of what's happening now with Trump and his family. The only thing I can think of is like the self-pardon route and making sure the Republican Party is, in his, is beholden to him and his whims in terms of controlling the debate and uh, controlling the funding, maybe controlling the RNC and having his supporters thrall, right, and still uh, loyal to him uh, and being a kingmaker. Those are just the simple ways other folks, uh, pundits, uh, legal experts have offered. I, I'm not much more creative than that.
0: Uh, no, I think that's um, that's important. Uh, Jerry Rawlings, J.J. Rawlings, just died. I think yesterday. Um, he's the he's a former uh, legally and democratically elected president of Ghana. But before that, in the 1990s, he was elected in, in 1992 and then re-elected in 1996. He had been a military. He had he had uh, had a coup. Was a military leader. Agreed to a, pres- a, a democratic transition and then ran in democratic elections and won. And you know, after he had won two elections and was term limited out, you know, there's always this fear about whether or not, even though these these former quote unquote strongmen have agreed to elections, whether they will abide by term limits. And a lot of times they don't, he did. But Victor, he did exactly what you were saying, which is Rawlings was a very potent and important presence in Ghanaian politics, both he and his wife um, with the party, the NDC that he had had, uh, helped establish and run under. Uh, until his death. And Ghana, by the way, is having an election uh, in a few weeks. Um, And and so I think you're right that there's, that can be kind of a a thing to dangle in front of somebody, Um, even though it hasn't typically, we typically think of ex presidents as kind of doing their own thing and not really being important to the parties that elected them in the United States. In other countries, that's that's not a terrible job to have afterwards. And that is kind of a way to get people to abide by the constitution and, and leave office is just tell them that they'll continue to be relevant. Yeah, I agree. Now, I'm not saying that people, I'm not saying that, I mean, I know half of Americans are not gonna like that as the answer, but that is that is a way to make it more attractive for somebody who who maybe doesn't believe that they lost the election or has a reason to pretend like they don't believe that. Um, but I think the the issue of prosecution, I think is is really interesting because you do have the constitutional ability of the president to pardon others. There's some debate about whether or not he can self-pardon, but he has no control over what the state of New York can do or what the Manhattan district attorney can do. Um, and he, he, he does not have the ability to, to pardon for state crimes or, or crimes committed in jurisdictions that are not the federal government. And so there, I think my worry is that this moment of transition is, is potentially informed by the fact that he could face legal prosecution once he leaves office. And there's actually very little he can do to prevent that from happening. And so the question is what does what does that person do in the meantime to try to destroy things and and what does that look like well I think one of the things he's doing with the Esper and the Department of Defense stuff is is perhaps purging people who weren't loyal but I think he's also probably trying to destroy as much evidence as possible that could be used against him or that is suggestive of uh, Russian interference in the twenty sixteen election, for instance, or other things. I assume something like this is going on at the Justice Department with whatever potential indictments may have come down or evidence of of, of from the Mueller investigation and the rest of it that could implicate him in the future. And that I think is very worrisome.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I take your word for it. I think uh, you have a better handle on this. Um, again, I think there's limited. There are limited. Uh, data points and it's just hard to figure out how to apply them to to trump limited data points from democracy where you lose a a, a re-election and you you possibly have uh skeletons in the closet that are now under investigation there are examples from latin america i can think of but usually um the Justice Department is so politicized from the get-go that it's just really difficult to know how credible these things are or, or whether um, it's a function of the political uh, alignment after the new um, uh, incumbent takes power rather than any like uh, objective rule of law concern or, or facts uh, on the ground.
0: Well, one of the things that I think is going to, the, I mean, th- this is where I think the comparisons to Latin America is really useful, because you're right that there isn't really, there. this is a little bit unprecedented in the U.S. and with other democracies, but it's not unprecedented in other countries. Well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, I mean, one of the things that the Biden administration is going to have to do is think about being that new incumbent and how punitive to be against the old incumbent. What do you think the lessons learned from countries that have transitioned and this question is on the table about the new new people coming into power. Is it more successful to go after the previous regime and prosecute and and, and go after and try to recover as much wealth as maybe stolen as possible? Is it better to sort of have transitional justice? Is it better to pretend like it never happened? What does the empirical record tell us?
1: The empirical record is uh, mixed. There's a trade-off here in terms of If you go after folks and bring the hammer down hard, then you create fear among their supporters, uh, in a sense, or you chill future incumbents because they fear that if they do things that are licit or legal or above board, there could be the possibility, because of the precedent set, for a politicized attempt to go after them. And that might distort the way they go about uh, governing and might even, um, it might even um, incentivize them to try to hold on and orchestrate a soft coup or something like that or an auto coup. So I think it's a little dangerous because you don't want to create perverse incentives or opportunities for incumbents to hold on to power because they fear they're going to get punished. In fact, one of the big points in my book with Mike and our work before that is that one of the biggest uh, determinants of democratic transition is the safety of elites that are outgoing from the dictatorship. If they feel safe, democracy is actually a really good thing for them, because the number one way in which you lose power in a dictatorship is a coup, and it might mean you die or are exiled. Or are,
0: what— But what about the reverse, if you're thinking about a democracy? I mean, let's say there really is evidence of crimes that were committed. Yes. What about setting the precedent? I mean, I understand that if a former president were indicted, that would be precedent setting in this country, which is a democracy. However, what about not setting the precedent of prosecuting somebody who if there is evidence and they should be indicted, what about setting that precedent? Isn't that bad for democracy?
1: Yeah, that's the trade-off I was going to get to, the moral hazard that you might incentivize bad behavior. Uh, so there's a fine line, right? My own view is if I had my druthers, I would let Trump go, but I would prosecute his friends and his collaborators. To me, that's the right way to do it because... It takes many people to commit a crime and cover it up or or be uh, uh, have impunity, right? And so the message, I think, should be to the underlings and to folks that uh, might have corrupted justice or politicized the Department of Justice or that might have aided and abetted if there are crimes. By the way, innocent until proven guilty. I don't know. President Trump deserves due oh, process yeah, like course. anyone else. So I don't know. But suppose there are. You could go down the rabbit hole, and and there's trouble there. Well, I, think- I my own view is actually I would pardon him, just like Ford did with Nixon, but and just like what happened, if I'm not mistaken, after Nixon, you go after everybody else, and that's what I would do.
0: But let me give let me say why I think that may be wrong. Um, You know, denazification took a different tack, right? So you, I mean, obviously when the Allies and and the Soviets. Took over and they won, you know. A lot of people committed suicide or went or went on the lam or absconded. Some were caught, but Nuremberg, the trials at Nuremberg, were very focused on a few individuals at the very top. Okay, and in my understanding of denazification, is then that you know a lot of the sort of underlings, the people that you know were the machinery of, of helping it to happen, they just kind of got away with it. There wasn't an overly punitive way of of, of going after them. And they, they went specifically for what they could get at the top and sort of left everything under that as it, were, as it was. And I'm not saying that that was just, I'm not saying that that was necessarily ethical, but politically it did perhaps is, is what accounts for why Germany or at least West Germany was able to remain stable. So I, I, I'm not sure I share your, your idea that the underlings is, is the way to go. I mean, what if you just went after Trump and left everybody else alone?
1: Well, here, let me push back and just here's my final thought. I think in this case, social science is less helpful. It's helpful with theory, but less helpful with analogous cases because President Trump is a uh, a very um, unusual idiosyncratic case in that he had direct ways of using political power for private gain. And he had a track record of fudging things with his business and of uh, maybe... Uh, not necessarily following the law. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what these prosecutors have on President Trump or not. And uh, it's not that interesting to me. Well, for the that,
0: record, we don't know. I mean, it's grand yeah, jury uh, stuff. We don't, nobody, real, nobody yeah, except that. I don't know. knows at this point. But
1: I, I would say, what are the odds you're going to get a billionaire or whatever his net worth is, a business person with little or no political experience running a populist campaign that gets him the White House and then has the ability to cash in with having diplomats stay at his hotel in DC. Well, I don't know, if I were gambling, I would I would put no money on that bet because it just seems, in terms of the distribution of all potential outcomes, very unlikely.
0: But the reporting is specifically on things that w- would have happened at the Trump Organization before he was president.
1: Then again, I would actually pardon him. And again, my bigger fear is what I said before, the other side of the trade-off. When I look at how democracy uh, is born. A lot of it, as I said, is the protection of folks that then feel secure and allow elections to happen, and maybe they like, you know, spend the rest of their days in their villa. For me, the, the benefit of democracy and it, all it does for, for citizens is much bigger than a person, and I'm willing to sacrifice perfect justice uh, for, and just the flawed reality of, of a human existence and a realistic perspective for that benefit. And a lot of democracies die, I feel, when folks feel fear and threat, right? Then they have incentives to go outside of the norms in the Constitution and do uh, autocratic things. So the less fear we sow and the less terror and threat, the better. But I will admit it might create the moral hazard of perverse incentives, just like when you... Um, Bailed out the banks after 2008, it created the moral hazard that they were too big to fail, and maybe they took riskier bets and are loaning money out to deadbeats that aren't going to pay it back. I don't know if that's the case, but maybe their balance sheets are worse because of it, right? You still have to save the economy by saving the banks. There are different ways of doing it. I don't want to weigh in on that right now, even though the fear is the moral hazard that the next next time it might be worse. Well, it might not be worse if you get prudential regulation right. Uh, uh, in the meantime, right? So that's my own view, and, and and folks might disagree with me, but that's where my own risk assessment lies.
0: I was going to say, I think the thing that people have to remember, too, which is a little bit different than other, you know, uh, uh, it's a little bit different than the quote-unquote, the new incumbents in other countries, is that, you know, a lot of this won't be Biden's decision to make. If things are done by the Attorney General of the State of New York or the Manhattan District Attorney, Biden doesn't control them. Um, now, Biden would ostensibly have control over the Department of Justice and perhaps whatever they have, um, because he would appoint the Attorney General. However, I think regardless of what you think may or may not happen with Trump in the Department of Justice, one of the things that Biden is very clearly going to have to do is reestablish the norm of the president not getting involved in the day-to-day operations of what happens at the DOJ. And so I, I actually think And Congress has already spoken. The House already impeached the president. The uh, Senate decided not to remove him. So in a a weird way, I think a lot of this will be attached and attributed to Biden, but he, he can't really control a lot of what happens, regardless of what he wants and what's wise.
1: Amen to that. And that can only be good for democracy, I think.
0: I, I agree with that. I think that is something that makes this system very important and special, which is power to you know power uh, power dividing institutions where things can happen at the local level that are not controlled by what happens at the federal government. So we we have to wrap up. But Victor, I would say just you know big picture, your last thoughts on the things that we should be worried about and we shouldn't be worried about in the next 10 weeks as we go through this transition based on your research and your insights from from elsewhere?
1: I have very few things to say because most, most of my insights are about transitioning from dictatorship to democracy, or they're about relatively young democracies, or they're about succession from one dictatorship to another within authoritarian systems. The big picture, though, I guess, is... Maybe my insight is we should know our history and we should know about the rest of the world. And we should be a little bit more steadfast and persnickety with definitions and with the mechanics of how different systems work and with transitions and succession. That could maybe save us a lot of grief and a lot of hyperbole and a lot of histrionics if we can just keep clear what a coup is versus an autocoup. If we could understand the very few cases of coups that displace elected governments and the very few cases of auto coups where an elected government is able to arrogate power, if we're able to understand how economies work in dictatorships and who the elites are and why they cozy up to dictators, and how they're um, codependent on each other, the uh, economy relies on the dictatorship for rents, because that's the way that they make uh, profits and they uh, stay. Alive economically. That's very different than our system. There's some corruption, there's some cronyism, but at the end of the day, this is a free market economy with entry and exit with uh, uh, healthy stock markets where innovation rather than rent seeking is the name of the game. If folks could understand the role of the military better and how it's sheltered off and doesn't play a politicized role and can't be captured by incumbents, that would help as well. And just, you know, a general sense that the world is bigger than the United States, that there are many, many, many data points to draw on for analogies, and that the Weimar Republic is only one. But if you think of the denominator, it's hundreds of thousands of potential cases, elections, governments, right? And so what are the odds that we're in a redux of Weimar? It just seems very low, given the distribution of total potential outcomes out there, right? Uh, It sounds a little wonky, but I guess literacy logic, as I always say, I'm going to say my tagline, facts, logic, evidence. Facts,
0: logic, evidence. Yeah, Yeah. I
1: don't know. I'm such a broken record. I'm almost ashamed of myself, but that's
0: what I think. Great. Well, I think that's a great place to end. I I wholeheartedly endorse that. And Victor Minaldo, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your thoughts. Thank you, James. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free No Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Witschduck, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.